This is the Life Truth Network. Quest for our Truth, Episode 461. <laughs> Quest for Truth, presented by Protectorate Productions and HPN, Helpsley Podcast Network. Now located at life-truth.com. And now, here is your host, Keith Helpsley. Hey, everybody, that is right. This is another episode of Quest for Truth. And this is your host, Keith, coming at you here. Uh, I got another a shorter episode. Uh, I wanted to keep it short because it's a solo episode. And I get tired of hearing me talk <laughs> without a co-host or someone to interview. But I wanted to uh, present another section in that uh, uh, Bible history uh, book that I've been reading through. And uh, the, the earlier part, if you missed it, because I, I kind of messed up my file uploading it and uh, if people got confused because you thought it was getting one thing and got another, I'm sorry about that. Um, but this is part two, if we missed the first one, which was about the history of the world at large at the time leading up to Christ, the Romans and Greeks and and others and religious and governmental things. Uh, kind of get the overall flavor of the lay of the land. Well, this one is going to focus more uh, on the uh, Jewish culture, uh, and we'll get into that in just a moment, so I won't say much further, but it's about the, what the Jewish climate was there in Israel, uh, for the good, for the bad, and for the otherwise, uh, and how the complicated world that Jesus was born into came about. Uh, well, we're going to end that uh, real quickly here uh, after we hear a few words from some of our fellow podcasters at the podcast. <laughs> we talk some of our fellow podcasters there at the Christian podcast community. There are just so many. I understand there's enough uh, listening material to go for 40 hours in a week. That's a full-time job listening to everybody. <laughs> And uh, hats off to uh, Andrew Rappaport, who founded the, uh, the community, for listening to everybody, even me. Wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> I guess this is the one he, he listens to when he needs a nap. But he, he does uh, share his secret. He just put it on three times the speed. So uh, uh, anyway, I'm sure my voice is a lot squeakier when he listens to me than it is when most people do. <laughs> But anyway, enough of that. Hey, here's our some of the voices you will hear on the community uh, amid all of the awesome uh, Bible teaching and so forth. Uh, here we go. Two, two, two great books and one website. Visit strivingforeternity.org. There are two books that I would like to recommend you purchase. What they, meaning people who aren't Christians, other religions believe, and what we believe. Systematic Theology Made Simple. Both are great resources, especially if you plan on witnessing to somebody. Strivingforeternity.org. Religionless Christianity with Spencer and Nicole Tosi. Five-minute daily devotionals with Religionless Christianity. 
Today we're going to be reading and discussing Luke chapter Our 22. proverb of the day comes from chapter 26, verse 24. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. And I'll end praying for you from Psalm 145. May the Lord show you he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. May you know the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth, that the Lord preserves all who love him. God bless. Find out more at religionlesschristianitypodcast.com. What does it really mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Confusion or faulty beliefs on this point will result in nothing more than pain and relational carnage. Christians must submit their understanding of love to God's revealed word. Love is not a feeling. Love is not tolerance or acceptance or ambivalence. Love is not merely romance. Love is a universe-altering choice to want and work toward God's best interest for the people in our lives, whether they want it or not, because that's how God loves us. The one true God of the universe has existed since eternity past in ultimate perfection. He spoke the cosmos into existence for his soul, honor, and glory. He moved heaven and earth to redeem mankind, even though we have nothing to offer him. And he's given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word. He deserves our worship. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our praise. I'm your host, A.M. Brewster, and this is the Celebration of God. If you want to know God better, celebrate Him more, and help the ones you love to do the same, subscribe to this podcast and visit celebrationofgod.com to learn more about this dynamic discipleship resource. And remember, the Celebration of God is a listener-supported ministry. Main Topic Okay, reading through this book, chapter, this would be called A History of the Christian Church, um, Williston Walker, Richard A. Norris, David W. Watts, Robert T. Hamby, copyright 1918, 1959-1970. 1985, Charles Scribner Sons, copyright renewed, 1946, Amelia Walker, Gushing, and Elizabeth Walker. Now, with all of the credits there up front, this will be chapter two in part one of this eight-part volume. And this one is going to focus on the Jewish background. And again, I'm not going to read it, but I do have some notes uh, and I will be drawing bits out of it. Um, but the uh, Jewish background, we have one key again. Um, we have six centuries prior to the birth of Christ. Uh, the Jewish people were under the rule of various empires that controlled the Syria and Palestine area. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who freed a portion of the Jews to return uh, under Ezra and, and Nehemiah. And while there, 
they were pretty much undisturbed in their uh, living their lives and their religious customs and so forth. Uh, then later, the Hellenistic rulers, uh, you know, Alexander the Great conquered you know, Persia, and they pretty much let things ride. They didn't intervene much. Um, and then we have some political status here. Uh, during the, the Greek period, uh, they, again, they were pretty much left alone by the Greeks. Uh, it was just a tiny state. It was isolated by geography and culture uh, from the Hellenized areas all around. And it didn't really partake uh, or share a lot in the prosperity of its neighboring countries. Uh, there were some dispersed Jews, the diaspora, uh, and in the same period uh, saw a lot of expansion outside of Judea, the, the diaspora. It's a Greek word, means means dispersed or um, um, but Jews outside of uh, the area that thrived in uh, uh, Greek and even uh, to a lesser degree in Egypt, which is surprising. I'll tell you why. Because in Jeremiah, uh, there were some Jews that went to Egypt to seek shelter from uh, the captivity, but they were prophesied by Jeremiah that they would not survive. They would be essentially you know, no longer exist. And uh, whenever Ezra and Nehemiah uh, called people back to uh, Israel, they did it under the stipulation that if you come, you're in. If you don't come, you don't count yourself part of us anymore. Uh, now, but clearly, you did have large communities, especially in the Greek lands uh, that were thriving. Uh, they they would be considered resident aliens there, not citizens, because uh, by the time of the first century, in other words, the Christian era begins, uh, about a... Uh, let's see. They didn't ordinarily become citizens because they would have to participate in the worship of the civil gods. Uh, they wanted to retain their religious identity so they would be resident aliens, kind of a status that let them have a community within a community, kind of like a, a, a gated community in the city or you might say uh, uh, a, a neighborhood or looking for a subdivision. That's what we're looking for. Um, but they were more like that. Uh, but there, there was quite a few uh, uh, at that time, at the time of Christ, would be living outside the area. Uh, but let's see, where they settled? Now, the, the focus of uh, Jewish society was the temple and the laws of Moses, uh, the diaspora Jews still paid a temple tax until it was destroyed in 78 AD. Uh, and even though it was uh, the focus, even amongst the uh, 
the Greek Hellenized Jews, uh, uh, they, they still, uh, uh, about where I'm going with that, uh, but keep, keeping the law was the goal of the serious Jew. Uh, so if you were a serious Jew, even if you were in the, uh, the, the Hellenized people, you studied the law. Uh, and, and keeping the law uh, is, is just that. You read and, and study, and you do that in the synagogue. The synagogue, every town had a synagogue, uh, or every region. Uh, if you lived in the country, there was a town nearby, and there was a synagogue nearby. It was the local center point of, of your community. And so that's where you went, much like we do today. They had a meeting place, and they had scrolls, and they had uh, a reading and interpreting of the scripture. Um, and... Uh, you had the synagogue officials, uh, I guess, first of all, would have notably, notably been scribes. Uh, the uh, officials were responsible for administering uh, the law and for excommunicating offenders. Uh, and all aspects of life uh, would fall under the law, uh, the scribes are counted as the first officials. Uh, they uh, sought to increase the range of the law, its application. They interpreted in a very cautious uh, and restrictive way. They kind of built a hedge around the law. Uh, now, the scribes, of course, what they would do, scribe, kind of describes it, they would write uh, the law. And uh, they would have to handwrite, uh, as the scroll wore out, they would have to handwrite new scrolls. And each, I guess each synagogue had that. Uh, that's not too unsurprising, but it is a little surprising to me. Um, and they developed uh, oral traditions. Now, actually, uh, this puts me in mind of you know, writing commentaries, uh, they did. They were oral traditions, but they were eventually written out and it would become part of the Talmud. And uh, and again, the the scribes. They, they. I mean, they did letter the law. I mean, literally, they had methods of counting numbers and precisely knowing uh, how to properly. Uh, uh, precisely handle God's word. But then they also wrote these commentaries, these oral traditions, and they, I guess it would take more liberty with that, uh, but they tried to to use that to hedge about, to safeguard, I mean, as, as precisely as possible God's word. you got to give them credit for that. Uh, but um, there was some cultural conflicts um, the great crisis of Jewish life arose in the middle of the second century out of the conflict and the community itself. It was both economic and religious sources. Uh, the elites of the Jews desired, um, well, they desired Greek culture, 
uh, the uh, being a Jew wasn't good enough, I guess. They they wanted to have gymnasiums, so they wanted to even um, rename Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, that's news to me. But they tried. They 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 liked the culture of the land. They liked the uh, society enjoyed by the Greeks and the various people, and they wanted to update that stodgy old Jewish religion. <laughs> Yeah, they were very, I guess, progressive uh, in their uh, treatment of religion. But they wanted to change the constitution of the country uh, so that it would no longer be all about following God, but have maybe more of a uh, uh, secular government. Uh, and it did not enjoy support at all from the common folk, certainly not uh, support by scribes, and it was indeed destined to fail, and with tragic consequences, uh, they replaced priests with politicians, as was a note I have here. Uh, when this reforming party made the mistake of replacing the high priest, people arose. Uh, they did not like that. Uh, and in order to ensure the safety of the realm, the Hellenistic leader uh, stood up, and it, literally he had the altar of Zeus put into the temple. Well, that wasn't going to go well. <laughs> uh, this is when the Maccabees revolt uh, happens. Uh, the the Maccabees. Uh, uh, they were able to step in. I'm going to find my place here again. The Maccabees, here we go. Um, this struggle over the, the Hellenization of the Jews uh, was addressed. Uh, of course, uh, let's see, the Maccabees, 167 B.C., Used guerrilla tactics uh, to compel uh, the Greeks to compromise with the Jewish leaders. And the final result had a threefold result. Uh, they uh, restored religion and they established a high priest. Uh, they rededicated temple. They had a constitution of an Ethnarchy. I'm not sure what that means. They were very ethnic. <laughs> but they got, says, Seleucid support. That's Egypt, isn't it? I think. I don't know. Um, but they got independence. They became an independent uh, nation again uh, because of the Maccabees. And this is, again, around 142 B.C. They were effectively independent. And, of course, the Maccabees were all the hot stuff of the time, I suppose you might say. Um, and the original rebellion was kind of put down. Its goals were frustrated. Uh, and... The Hasminian dynasty, I guess that's what you call that, uh, 
But the Romans come on the scene and they complicate matters. Uh, the, this era of the Maccabees uh, sets up the matrix of the religious parties uh, and the Romans, what they try to do, uh, they set up uh, the Jewish kingdom under a proprietor, and if I'm not mistaken, the proprietor that they set up to rule over uh, this Judean area is Herod, Herod the Great. Um, now, the Rome system might have worked, but they chose Herod. Uh, the thing is, nobody liked Herod. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, he was Idumian, which, which is the descendants of Esau. And no, like I said, nobody liked him. He uh, did contribute to prosperity of the land. Uh, and pre he did help preserve, preserve Jewish interest. Now, Herod, if I'm not mistaken, was forced to convert to Judaism, and he probably resented it, which was probably why nobody really liked him, because he probably let people know he didn't like it. Uh, let's see, the problems with Herod is, like a problems with Herod, uh, the fact that he was even king at all violated the Israeli constitution because uh, they did not allow foreigners to rule over them. It was abhorrent to have a king rule over them who was not part of the line of David or the, you know, a foreigner. You know, he was, again, from the tribe of Esau, so he wasn't like all that for him, but he, well, he was. Um, and uh, other things about Herod is, uh, let's see, he was a cautious Hellenizer. Um, he taxed people into poverty. Uh, he put on so heavy of a tax burden that even people who uh, I guess he might be say middle class. He, he taxed people into into having to beg for a living, uh, and that did not go well for the common man. Um, and now the Roman solution to that is to well bring in Pontius Pilate. They they set up uh, Roman governors and rulers, um, but it's too late because the damage was done to the uh, social political environment uh, and let's see what else during this time the Hasminian era is as a time frame you know where you had the, the Maccabees to the Hellenists to the Romans it sets up this dynasty of high priests uh, the high priests were uh, essentially I guess uh, a ruling class 
of the Maccabees, the aristocratic uh, people. And the high priest office was passed down uh, by by birth. I mean, like like a, a king and a prince, it was passed down. It was inherited. There's what we're looking for. Uh, it was in your family. To be the high priest, you had to be in the high priest's family. Um, but the uh, the high priests were the ruling party. They would be considered politically conservative, uh, although uh, they didn't have a lot of loyalty to the law and religious traditions. But you did have a group called the Sadducees who uh, did try to uphold the law and the Sadducees I'm trying to find my spot here again uh, loyal to the law uh, but would not accept oral traditions of the scribes they denied uh Ideas of immortality, supernatural uh, notions of good and evil spirits, but they were influential politically with the elites, I suppose, but they were unpopular with the masses. The common people uh, didn't much care for them. Uh, and they were also open to foreign influences, and they were a little bit lax with the law. Well, I think. Let me make sure. I'm not sure if that last note is on the Sadducees or on the high priests. Let me see. Anyway, maybe both. Um, but anyway, the Pharisees also came along at this time. Uh, and they are this this called the, the separated the the Hasidic Jews be in this group of people its main concern was in being sanctified through joyous observance in the law uh, although they were a party of zealots they really didn't care an awful lot about government power um, they did take issues with uh things involving political life. Uh, but Pharisees also, um, well, they, here, here's some things to be admired about the Pharisees. Uh, they broke with the Hesmidians, the high priests, basically. They questioned the the positions of the high priest. Uh, they were influential, widely admired, to, that the, eventually the high priests were forced to give their representation in the Sanhedrin. Now, most people lacked education or the time to utterly devote themselves to the law, so they they were they weren't a full time uh, religious guy. Uh, they 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 had other things to do that they, they couldn't devote uh, time like the scribes did. They. they you, you might say that they would be more along the lines of a bivocational type of a uh, minister uh, because they just didn't seek the time to educate themselves or uh, 
dedicate themselves to that. Now, I'm thinking that by the time uh, Jesus came on the scene, maybe they had reached that point because we find out later that Paul was very educated. He was very educated in the way of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee's Pharisee, he claims. Um, now, uh, some theology of Pharisees, uh, they stood for certain popular beliefs that grew out of the Jewish experience since the time of the exile. They held to the idea of good and evil spirits, uh, angels, uh, Satan, which actually was influenced by Persian beliefs. Uh, they had eschatological beliefs. <laughs> I guess at some uh, other others did not. Um, they did believe in the resurrection of the body and future rewards and punishments. Um, and then we have another group here called the Essenes. Now, this book, uh, originally I remember the copyrights 1918. And honestly, before 1943, uh, the only way you're going to find out anything about the Essenes is what you know from reading the Bible, and there's virtually nothing in there. But this uh, paragraph here, uh, everything in this paragraph has to come from a reprint, the 1950-something or 80-something, because none of this would have been known at the time of the original writing. Uh, but they were connected with the Pharisaic party in opposition with the Hesmenillium settlement. <laughs> they are known chiefly because of the scrolls discovered at Qumran on what to show the Dead Sea. Uh, they lived a quasi-monastic life and the rest of Israel. They're kind of standoffish hermits. You know, maybe it kind of reminds me of is. Uh, uh, the uh, the Amish, they kind of keep to themselves. So I think these must have been the Amish version of the Jewish people. <laughs> they they uh, didn't get involved. Uh, the origins are obscure. Uh, and previously, it was only known from Philo, Josephus, and some other historians. Uh, how, uh, however, uh, again, with the uh, the findings of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, a lot more about them has been found out. Uh, and it goes on to talk about who they suspect might be their founder and teacher. Um, um, let me see. But they felt that they were the true congregation of Israel. Um, and this movement, unlike the Pharisees, they just withdrew uh, from mainstream life. Uh, they felt it was a true congregation of Israel, the faithful remnant, and they, they were the only ones who had the righteous teachers to follow. Uh, they didn't like what's happening in the current perversions of the faith. Now, I have to say, were they right? Well, we don't know anything about them, do we? They must have all died off. So if they were the true faith, the true remnant, 
um, they're all gone. And all we have left is the non-true ones. Uh, so I, I'm going to say that they may have meant well, but I'm going to say they probably were not right about that. Uh, but um, some notes about rituals and disciplines. Oh, more about the Essenes, I guess. Uh, they observed periodic frustrations. They observed a sacred meal of bread and wine. Uh, they had a manual of disciplines, which de details all these things. Uh, they had overseers, priests, elders, others. Uh, but they looked forward to the future redemption of Israel. They expected a messianic figure. Uh, to arrive, to defeat enemies, and to inaugurate an age of God's rule. Uh, now, I think the Pharisees also uh, held to some of that, uh, but this is talking about Essenes, so we'll, we'll stick with that. Now, it goes on here, and see, apocalyptic writings were at this time um, all the rage, I guess you would be the way to put it. Uh, and this, of course, uh, expanded to more popular Judaism um, that they felt a decisive intervention by God to set things right. Uh, and it points to uh, literature of the first and second centuries B.C. and later uh, recorded visions of mysteries of the heavenly world of human history, God's plan for overthrowing wickedness. Uh, and th they say that these kind of books were invariably uh, revealed to some ancient sage or other. And popular writings at the time would include uh, Daniel, maybe the best known of these. And uh, alongside it would be the book of Enoch, the Assumption of Moses, and then later, uh, the revelation of John, uh, the Christian writing, of course. Uh, now, the point of this apocalyptic literature is assuring that God himself will visit and redeem his people uh, to frustrate the cosmic and earthly powers of evil, restore the righteousness of his kingdom. And there was various... Uh, ways how this would come about. Sometimes God himself would come. Sometimes he would act through the agency of an angelic or supernatural being. And uh, there's even mentions of the Lord's Messiah who was expected to come return and restore the kingdom of his father. Uh, but the again, that the point is that God God would act and his actions would be sufficient to overcome. Uh, they also uh, had w wisdom literature was a popular uh, style of the time. And that uh, wisdom would uh, address a practical aspects of life. Uh, it helped to understand God's law and it became 
the basis of inquiries uh, into various uh, cosmological <laughs> and philosophical and uh, moral and legal questions. Um, now, some, I, I have the philosophy of wisdom. I don't know if that's exactly a good way to put it. Uh, but there's when you talk about these wisdom writings, it uh, ties them in with some of the Greek philosophers' styles of wisdom and writings. Um, and um, but um, I don't have a lot more to say about that actually. But um, but Judah, Judaism was uh, I know it was a protected religion, um, and I. These wisdom literature writings were known outside of uh, the Jewish culture, uh, not only in Palestine, but in Greek and Roman cities. Uh, and, and Greek and Roman law protected uh, the farmers. Uh, it says, necessary since their religious exclusiveness and unwillingness to participate in civic life sometimes made them unpopular. Okay. Um, I'm, what did I label that? I labeled it protected religion. Okay. Well, I, I guess their, their writings were hard to take and they need to be protected <laughs> uh, by the Roman government. Anyway, uh, culture of diaspora Jews. Now, this... Uh, actually, the diaspora Jews had a lot of adjustments to the Hellenist world. Uh, they spoke Greek almost universally, even in their synagogues. Um, and in fact, they're probably the driving force behind the Septuagint, the LXX, which is the, the Greek version of the uh, Old Testament. Uh, but they had to be careful about not to mix with pagan religions, uh, they were responsible for uh, proselytizing. In other words, they actively sought to bring um, Greeks into the Jewish community, they actively uh, tried to grow the church by getting non-Jews to join and become Jews. And it's something of a model that uh, Christian evangelists uh, in the first century uh, would use as well uh, in here. Um, but they blended Judaism with the Greek philosophers. Uh, and again, I think it's kind of steeped in uh, the, the, the wisdom literature and some of the themes that are there that in a lot of ways uh, had some uh, syncretism with Greek philosophy and you know even what we like to say here at quest for truth is hey if it's true it's true in the bible and it's also true out of the bible uh, truth is truth no matter where you find it and if it is true it will be true both in the bible and out of the bible and i think that these uh, diaspora uh, hellenistic 
uh, Greek Jews were coming to grips with that, that they, they could see elements in the Greek philosophers that, that mashed well. And um, that's kind of interesting to me. Um, and um, they also got into some allegorical interpretation, which to me is kind of a touchy area. Uh, not that allegory is a bad thing, but it can be if you stretch the parable farther than it's meant to go. <laughs> uh, and if you understand that a parable is a parable, uh, they start to say take a historic uh, uh, event in uh, Bible history and count it as an allegory to stretch it and press it in the ways it's not supposed to. <laughs> get some trouble there but they they uh, the allegory was a, i guess a tool that greek thinking used and these diaspora jews began to use this allegorical system to help them understand their own theology uh, which i guess there's that and there's nothing wrong with that. We even find Paul does that on at least an occasion or two. Um, and but you got to me, you got to be careful with that. Um, but there is that chapter, um, and so there's some background of what the Jewish culture was like at the time when Jesus came on the scene. And when it comes to this, uh, the Hellenistic Jews, there were a lot of them. And to me, they were kind of the progressive Unitarian people of the time. <laughs> they may were maybe kind of out there in their beliefs, uh, definitely not as conservative as the, the good old home folks uh, back in Israel. And I can see why uh, during the early church, like uh, the, the Hellenistic widows were not getting their fair share whenever they would uh, uh, share bread at the table, and it took you know Stephen and the other uh, deacons to make sure that uh, those uh, issues were taken care of, while uh, uh, Peter and the rest administered the word. Uh, and I and I I can see why there would be a little bit of uh, rift between uh, those progressive uh, Greek Jews and us conservative real Jews. Uh, it's very understandable, uh, but th but this is all part of the climate, and uh, I'd like to come back and do this some more. Uh, look at some early uh, church history, and we'll, if I do, the next step will be uh, looking at the actual time of Christ and his followers. Is the next uh, segment in the book here. And um, so that's what to anticipate. And I, I, I think I'll at least maybe go there, but it depends how further I go <laughs> in this first part. We'll see. But anyway, that's what I got on this. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity. And they provide speakers and seminars that come to your church with expertise in theology, hermeneutics, world religions, creation science, evangelism, presuppositional apologetics, church history, and expertise in sexual abuse in the church. For details on their seminars and to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Striving to make today an eternal day for the glory of God. 
if the practice principle is vital for teaching such morally neutral tasks as tying shoes, how much more important is it for training children in Christ-like character? This is Yvette Hampton, host of the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. Join us each week for a new episode as we offer encouragement and resources on biblical discipleship from popular speakers and authors, as well as parents just like you and me. Find out more at schoolhouserocked.com or listen anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Commands of Christ, presented by Nathan Caldwell. Matthew seven fifteen and 16 says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, which is kind of what you were talking about earlier, isn't it? But mm-hmm. inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? People, I'm telling you, they may look like Christians, but they're not acting like them. Not really. You can know them by their fruits. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, goodness. I think faithfulness was one. <laughs> Gentleness. And, and, and I want to say something. doesn't mean that there's no fruit. It's just sometimes that fruit is rotten. And sometimes you look at it and it's not what it's supposed to be. And that's when you start to know, wait a minute, you know, uh, this this is not a Christian. A Christian doesn't act this way. And then you start wondering, you know, are they or aren't they? That was Commands of Christ, presented by Nathan Caldwell. Quest for Truth, now located at life-truth.com. Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I am your host, Melba Toast. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Welcome, ladies. I pray you are in His Word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Okay, well, uh, that's that. Uh, just a quick overview of, you know, uh, how they got from the prophets and some of the speed bump there with the Maccabees and the revolt. And they kind of tried to get things on track. And one thing I didn't know is the the, the thing about the high priest. I didn't, I, I guess I knew, but I didn't know that they were like a uh, a family hierarchy. They were, they, I knew that they were the elites, but I didn't know 
precisely that it was passed down from father to son through generations in a kind of an extension from that early Maccabean period. So it's not that they did things wrong, but I think by the time Jesus came on the scene, they were just a little bit too full of themselves. They, maybe they, they felt like uh, they were owed too much. I don't know. And uh, I didn't know some of the relationship of the Pharisees. I, I, I kind of thought that they were uh, an elite group, but according to this uh, history, both they and the Sadducees were more of a, you might say, working class group, a bunch of working class folks who wanted to get back to Scripture. Uh, of course, the scribes uh, and what they did with the commentaries, I, I, I kind of knew about that. Uh, but I didn't know how they all interacted, who was on the scene first, and, and all that. It was interesting. I hope it was interesting to you, too. But this is how the stage was set. I, what I did know about King Herod, <laughs> he, he was a piece of work. But I didn't know precisely how he got established or why. Uh, and th this chapter kind of helped explain it a little bit, to me at least. Anyway, once again, I hope it... Uh, was informative to you as well and I have read an awful lot f more further into the book although I do want to present at least the next section because it talks about uh, the time of Christ, his followers uh, and the time of the apostles. Now don't get your hopes up but it's not like a you, you'll get more out of the biblical account if you're looking for a lot of theology uh, it's it, it's a history book, so it, it focuses on the history. Uh, it doesn't really get into a lot of theology, but it still, I think, is interesting. And I want to at least do that one, and I'll need to read some more in the book <laughs> to see uh, uh, how far I want to go with this. Uh, but uh, if you can find it, uh, more power to you. Uh, again, I don't know if it's in print. Uh, I don't know if it's the public domain. Uh, I got it as part of a collection, and I, I could point you to the collection, but you may or may not be able to get access to it. Uh, it just contact me, and I can tell you why. Anyway, with all that, uh, hopefully we'll see you all back here next week. We'll have something else to talk about. And uh, if you want to drop me a line, tell me what you want me to talk about. Uh, well, here comes our voice of the podcast to tell you all about how to do that. So take it away, Anthony Russo. And thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. Visit life-truth.com where you can find all our shows. Leave a message or call our voicemail number at 401-753-4844. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash life truth page. Follow us on Twitter at HPNCast, capital H, capital P, capital N, capital C, A-S-T. Everything Nathan Caldwell does can be found at facebook.com forward slash protectors of the book. Music in the show is used by permission of Kevin Zerby at zerbinator.wordpress.com. May God richly bless you. May you find everything you need, and if you don't know Jesus, your greatest need is a Savior. Thanks for listening. Yeah.